Amen. Turn your Bible to Mark chapter 5. Mark the fifth chapter, please. Mark chapter 5. We begin with Mark 5, really with the fourth chapter and verse 39, where we left off this morning. Mark chapter 4, verse 39, and reading through Mark 5, 20. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they came over unto the other side of the sea, unto the country of the Gerasenes. Now the text would imply that this occurs about the same time. They had crossed the sea, the wind had come up, the storm had developed. The disciples had said, Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep when each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep? And Jesus got up, and with a twinkle in his eye, he looked at them. And then he looked at the sea, and he said, Peace, be still. The winds and the waves hushed and the wind stopped. And the Lord turned to them and said, How is it that you're fearful? Do you not have any faith? And then they came to the other side. And they were about to see another experience. They were about to witness something that would bear a mark on their minds all the rest of time until God promoted them home. And then they recorded it, and all through the 2,000 years of Christendom, men have not known quite what to make out of what we see in chapter 5. Verse 2, when he was come out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. For he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains, and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there near unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the demons besought him, saying, Send us unto the swine, that we may enter into them. 
and forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000, and they choked in the sea. They that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the demon and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You see, if just some human hand had touched this man, if he'd visited the psychiatrist or the psychologist's office or the psychoanalyst who laid him down on a couch and he talked about all of his subconscious thoughts, it's not very likely that the man would have been clothed and in his right mind. The thing that scared them was the dramatic change. People don't expect a change in human behavior, in human personality. They don't know what to make of it. That's the reason if you've been changed, if sin no longer has control of your life, the unsaved world doesn't know what to make of you. They think you're an anomaly. They look at you and they scratch their heads and they think, well, I don't understand. I don't quite know how to figure this out. There must, he must be up to something. Must be some kind of scheme. And they were afraid. And they, they that saw it told them how it beheld, befell to him that was possessed with a demon and also concerning the swine. And they began to implore him to depart out of their borders. And when he was come into the boat, he that had been possessed with the demon implored him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus permitted him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them what great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and all, all men did marvel. There are three truths in this passage that I'd like for us to wrap our mental tents around as we consider the truth that the Lord Jesus is trying to get to us. First of all, the calm. Secondly, the conflict. And thirdly, the commission. First of all, the calm. Now, Jesus had been teaching his disciples what the kingdom of God was like. In Matthew, these parables that relate to the kingdom of God are called the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew, there seems to be a tinge of difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God referring to that sphere of the rule of God which is real. The term kingdom of heaven referring to that sphere of the rule of God which is professed, whether it's real or superficial. And in order to understand those parables in Mark chapter 5, we need to read carefully Matthew 13 because there is the same record there. And in that record, these parables seem to be parables concerning the kingdom of heaven. 
And I'm aware that most Bible scholars, many Bible scholars believe there is no difference between the parables that relate to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. But if you will notice carefully in Matthew, the term kingdom of God is only used four times while the kingdom of heaven is used 32 times, which seems to suggest, and in each instance where it is used, it seems to suggest the professed kingdom or rule of God, whether it is real or superficial. And Jesus in Mark chapter 5, telling these same parables that are recorded in Mark, Matthew chapter 13, is reminding the Christians, his disciples, that everything is not going to be like it seems to be. That when you sow the seed, everybody's not going to believe. That the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The tiniest of seeds, and then it grows and grows and grows and becomes a great tree in the earth. And a tree, a big, big herb, lets down its roots into the ground. And the Lord Jesus would not use that type of parable to that type of, type of imagery to suggest something concerning the people of God whose mind is to be set on things above, not on things on the earth. And the hint, the insinuation is that this suggests a false growing with the real because the wheat and the tares are also spoken of in Mark, Matthew 13. And the idea is that the kingdom of heaven, herein called the kingdom of God in Mark, is going to have in it, here in the earth, the professed believers, some superficial and some real possessors. And this thing will grow and grow and grow, and there will come a day in the earth when men will not be able to tell by looking which is which, which is real and which is superficial. And we live in a day like that now. And before the end of the age, it will be more severe. Before the end of the age, we will see a thing in the earth that would not be thought possible. And when the age has ended, and the age of tribulation has come, there will still be the professing church in the earth, the ecumenical world church, if you will. And it will seem to have a type of religiosity and when the believers are taken out, it will go on with its work because it doesn't need the Holy Spirit to do its work. Now, Jesus is hinting at that at Mark chapter 5, chapter 4. And in order to stamp it upon the hearts of his disciples so they'd never forget it, this thing about the ship going across the sea and the tempests and the winds come up and all the tempests of earth seem to blow upon the disciples. And Jesus is asleep. What a picture. It's as if the Lord is saying, now I'm going to leave you one day. I'll still be there. You'll not be able to see me, but I'll be there. And you'll be smitten by the winds and the waves and the tempests of the earth. What are you going to do? Wring your hands and pull your hair? Or can you quietly, serenely trust me? 
They went up and said, Jesus, wake up, wake up, as if he didn't know there was a storm. Wake up! Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep when each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep? The Lord got up and looked at them, the, the winds and the waves, and said, Peace, be still. And he looked at the disciples and he said, How is it that you're afraid? Have you no faith? And suddenly there came a great calm, wonderful calm. Far away in the depths of my spirit tonight, there's a calm that is sweeter than day. When Jesus dwells in our heart, there is peace because Jesus whispers peace. And this is where the disciples were when they came to the side of the sea. There was a calm. That wonderful sea of Galilee, so shimmering, so beautiful, so silvery. And they got out of the boat. They were going to have a great time. And then the conflict came. Always the conflict comes in the time least expected. Always right after the calm, there's a storm. Somebody said the devil works on you harder at these times. Number one, just before a great victory. Number two, just after a great victory. Number three, when you're tired and exhausted. That's when Satan works on you. And so they came to the country of the Gerasians. And when Jesus was out of the boat, immediately it says, you under, ought to underscore that word immediately in your Bible, immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, they didn't know what to do with this man. He is described in eight ways. Listen to these. Number one, he was a man with an unclean spirit. Number two, he had his dwelling among the tombs. Number three, no man could bind him, no, not with chains. Number four, the chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. Number five, he was always night and day in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Can you not see this individual? Number six, when he saw Jesus far off, he ran and worshiped him. Now, isn't that strange? This man, filled with an unclean spirit, when he saw Jesus, he ran and worshiped him. How many times the unclean spirits recognized Jesus when the regular people didn't recognize him? What do you make of that? They didn't know who he was. Pilate said, who are you? Jesus said one day, who do men say that I the son of man am? Some people said, well, some of them think you're Jeremiah, some of them one of the prophets, somebody else, John the Baptist. Who do you say I am? They said, Jesus the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. There are two ways to recognize Jesus for what he is and who he is. Number one is the, the divine unveiling of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit so that a mind, a finite mind and a finite heart can have an unveiling and can see Jesus who he is. 
Now the other is just as real. Satan recognizes who Jesus is. And we need to remember that. This man with an unclean spirit immediately recognized who Jesus was. Now, possibly it wasn't the man himself, but it was the unclean spirit inside of him that recognized who Jesus was. Now look at verse 7. This is the seventh thing. He cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Now that's an odd thing to say to the Lord. The Lord doesn't torment. The unclean spirit within him, within the man, recognized Jesus' deity, recognized that he was God. And he said, he said, don't torment me. He recognized the authority of God in Jesus. Sometimes we don't recognize that. The eighth way he is described in verse 9, he asked him, what is thy name? Jesus asked him, what is the name? And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. This man possessed by an unclean spirit was possessed by many unclean spirits. He was possessed with demons, legions of demons. What are demons? Who is the devil? There's been much misunderstanding about the devil. And I don't really like to talk about this, but it's here, it's in Scripture. I'd rather, rather talk about Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Jesus, say his name. Again, again, there's something about that name of Jesus. But believers need to be armed with a recognition of who Satan is. And if we don't recognize who he is, we may be overtaken by him. The devil is a real person. The Bible testifies to it all the way through. Now, the devil is not some power opposite to God, self-existent from all eternity, but rather Satan is a created being who rebelled. Satan is the leader. He is the leader of a legion of demons or rebels. You might say that Satan's opposite is Michael, the archangel, because Satan is a created being and Michael is a created being. You're not to say that the opposite of God is the devil. There is no opposite of God. God is forever and forever. He was before all things. He is from eternity to eternity. And the Bible says that God created everything. There is nothing in existence that God didn't create. He created the angels. He created the seraphs. He created the cherubs. 
He created all the heavenly beings. And when that morning star angel rebelled against God, the Bible tells us in Ezekiel and in Isaiah that he was cast down out of the heavens. And in rebellion against God, he led a whole insurrection of angels against God. This is where Satan originated and demons originated. And somebody say, preacher, you're telling a fairy story tonight. This is what the Bible says. And if we're to understand about demons, if we understand about the power of the devil, if we're to understand that this is not some illusion, not some just mere insanity, but something that is within this individual that has caused him to cut himself, to be in rebellion against himself and his neighbors and his friends and his God. It is something more severe than simply a nervous disorder. There are seven certainties about the devil. The Bible says in Luke 4, 6 that Satan is the god of this world and claims that authority. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he contends with the saints. In Matthew 4, 1, he tempts to disobedience. In Job 1, 9 to 11, he slanders and accuses the saints. In Matthew 4, 6, he confuses the word of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, he blinds the minds of those who do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 20, 10, he is destined for judgment. He is already on the losing side. Demons and demon possession. Who are demons? The scripture does not clearly state who they are. They are the working out of evil spirits in our lives. They are an order of evil spirits, Satan's emissaries, if you will, numerous who amplify Satan's power, according to Matthew 12. Now, some have suggested that demons are the souls of bad men, wicked people. Philio and Josephus are two leaders in this school of thought. They used to say that demons were men who had died and gone to hell and they'd come back as spiritual entities and they inhabited men. Uh, during the Dark Ages, this is the reason there was so much fear about cemeteries. People were scared to go around cemeteries. That's, there's still a leftover from that. A lot of people don't like to go through a cemetery at night. Well, there's nothing in a cemetery at night that can bother you, that can't bother you outside the churchyard. Uh, others have said that demons are fallen angels who were not yet chained in Tartarus, according to the Scripture. However, the Scripture teaches that no fallen angel has ever tried to really inhabit a man. Still others have said they are the disembodied spirits of a pre-Adamic race seeking re-embodiment. None of these really satisfies the spiritual man. We must leave it to the plain scriptural teaching 
that they are Satan's emissaries. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, they are called messengers of Satan to buffet us. Paul said, lest I have exaltations and be lifted up beyond measure, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, what is the work of demons? Number one, to inflict disease, according to Job chapter 1, and Matthew chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. There is a difference between demon possession and physical disorders, according to Matthew 4, and Matthew 8, and Matthew 9. The demons attempt to inflict diseases, and yet this is, we're not to think that every disease that comes is, is a demon obsession or possession. But in the Scripture, demons laid hold of men. On the other hand, there were some illnesses and diseases in the Scripture that were not called or not assigned as to their origin to, to Satan or demons. Demons cause mental disorders. But at the same time, not all mental illnesses stem from demon activity. Demons lead many into moral impurity, filthy thinking, filthy spirit, filthy conduct. There are examples of that in the Scripture. There are examples of that today. Here's a father who loves this little child. takes into himself that demon of alcohol until he goes completely out of his mind and takes a hatchet, cuts off his son's hands. Did you read about it in the paper? And cuts off his feet. Why? You say mental insanity? He wasn't insane. The psychiatrist examined him. He was under the demon of alcohol. I haven't any use for liquor in any form. And I don't think my heart and mind could, mouth could ever be closed against speaking out against liquor. A number of years ago, when a friend was mayor of our city, he invited me to come and lead in prayer at a place. And I said, sir, they're going to have liquor at that place. He said, yes, they are. I said, well, I can't come and pray over the liquor. And I didn't go. I'm not about to. Liquor has slain its thousands. Every time I can get a lick in against it, I'm going to. Much of the impurity that's going on in our world today, I think, is from demon obsession. Some of it is demon possession. A man came to visit me one day, 
some years ago. He seemed a little bit out of it. He wasn't under drugs. But his mind was so twisted and so contorted, he wanted me to be convinced that there was nothing wrong with his sin. And his sin was of the most sordid kind and description. And he told me all the good things about it and how so many people were involved in it and how much of society was smiling at it. And he defended it. And he told me some of its involvements. I think his mind was clouded with demon obsession, demon activity that causes men to see black as white and white as black or to see nothing but gray. I think we, our whole civilization is somewhat clouded over with that now. Young people, listen to me a minute. No matter what we're told concerning VD, concerning abortion, concerning sexual promiscuity, and no matter what the radio tells you in its advertisements that say, you can now have these examinations and your parents will never have to know about it. Or it is legal to have abortions and your mom and dad will never have to know about it. I want to tell you something, God knows it. Your mom and dad may never know it, but God knows it. And the thing that would lead to clouded thinking concerning this matter is a spirit of demonic origin, whether it is demon obsession or whether it is demon, demonic origin. These, th Satan is at work today trying to cloud our thinking about it all. Demons disseminate false doctrine in, in Timothy. Some of the doctrines are called de doctrines of devils. So much of the cultism that goes out today and sounds spiritual is of demonic origin. And we need to watch it. Demons oppose God's children and their spiritual purposes. Demons sometimes possess human beings and even animals. Now there's a difference between demonic obsession and demonic possession. If I understand this Word of God correctly, when you receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord, you receive the Spirit of Jesus in your heart. No man can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And if, no, if you do not have the Spirit of Jesus abiding in you, then you're not of Christ's. You're not even saved if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. If you have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption, then you're not even born again. You may be a church member, 
You may be in the apparent kingdom of heaven, the professed kingdom of heaven, but you do not possess eternal life unless the Spirit of God dwell within you. And brother, if the Holy Spirit dwell within you, Satan can never claim you. I believe the Scripture teaches it's impossible, impossible, not possible, for demons to possess a believer. They can obsess. They can attack. They can infiltrate. They can do all manner of activity against us, but they cannot claim us. They cannot possess us. Satan can never claim one of God's child's children. And so we notice that this man was not saved. He was not one of God's child. He, children, he was not only obsessed, but he was possessed by this unclean spirit. Now look what Jesus did. He came running to Jesus and he said, Now I know who you are. Oh, don't bother me. Don't bother me. Now this is not a normal reaction. A lot of people that come under the sound of the gospel want Jesus to bother them. <laughs> and there may be somebody here tonight who is unsaved. You've never been saved. And the reason you're here, you want Christ to disturb you. That's the reason you've come. Now you may not think you do. But the reason you come and subject yourself to the preaching of the Word of God is because there's a hunger inside of you that says, I want something that I don't have. Now this man said, don't bother me. Leave me alone. I don't really believe the man felt that way, but the demons were speaking through him. If I understand this scripture correctly, the demons were using the voice of the man. And what sounded like the voice of that man was really the voice of those demons speaking through him. He was so controlled by them. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Now, the Lord didn't have to beg and plead and work some kind of miracle and say, oh, and all that kind of thing. He didn't do that. He said, come out of the man, just like that. You don't have to work magic over somebody. You don't have to have prayer claws and bless them and, and put them on some sore spot. You don't have to have healing lines. Jesus simply said, come out of the man. And look what happened. These demons besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. There were... There were there was near the man, there was near the, this, this man uh, a great herd of swine feeding. Scripture says about 2,000 of them, great herd of them. And all the demons besought him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. I don't really know what to make of that except to think that maybe the second choice of demons is hogs. They'd really have, rather have men their second choice is hogs. And so if demons are attacking you tonight, remember that what they really would like is for you to behave like an animal. And if you find that you're tempted to act like animals rather than man made in the image of God, check up on it. It may be that the demons are attacking you. We live in a society that tries to 
emphasize living like animals. You know, one of the attacks that is being made on the Christian school movement today is that the Christian schools are not using state-approved textbooks. Many of the state-approved textbooks teach evolution. And they teach that man came from monkeys and apes and that really we're just animals. The Bible says that man has many of the characteristics of an animal, but God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. And this differentiates him from an animal. And when the demons come, they try to get you to act like hogs and dogs and cats and animals and bulls and heifers. That's what this word teaches. And you just look at society, that's where they're acting. The guys are acting like bulls, and the girls are acting like heifers. That's pretty plain, isn't it? You look on the restroom walls in the public buildings. You read some of the trashy notes that kids passed each other. Now, I'm not saying that people that do that are demon-possessed. I'm saying that this is demon activity that would try to get men to act like animals instead of like men made in the image of God and women made in the image of God. And so they said, now, send us into the animals. Send us into those swine. The swine will do what we tell them to do. And so they sent them into the, so Jesus gave them leave. And they entered the demons, the legion of demons entered into the animals. I don't understand this, but those crazy hogs ran down the, down the mountain and committed hogicide. filled with demonic power. They had no better sense. And so do men and women and boys and girls behave when they're under the power of demonic infiltration in their lives. Now I want you to notice something else in this conflict. There were people standing around saw this. The demons were cast out of the man the hogs went down and plunged into the river and the man was clothed and in his right mind and some of the people that stood by and watched it ran into town and said, hey, guess what happened? Guess what happened? Jesus just killed 2,000 hogs. That's all they could see. They forgot about that man. In those days as well as today, there was more value placed in the animals than in a man. I want to say to you, Jesus demonstrated just the opposite. He said one individual man is worth more than 2,000 hogs. Financially speaking, as well as every other way. And so the possessors of those hogs got all disturbed and upset. This is, this is affecting my economy. This is affecting my, now it's all right for this Jesus to be out there preaching. If he wants to do that, but he's, he can't meddle with my business. He can't do anything about my liquor house and my saloon and my tobacco and all that kind of thing. Just to leave that alone. 
Uh, and, and if you just want to say some pious platitudes and, uh, you know, some nice little pretty moralisms, it's okay. But don't you do anything radical in a man's life that would lead him to be revolutionary, revolutionized for Christ. Don't do that. If you do, we won't know what to do, to do with you. And that's what the unsaved world is still saying. When Billy Sunday used to come to town, he'd preach. He'd take a chair. Boy, our, our people around here would be scared to death. He'd whop it over something, break it all to pieces. He'd jump up on a chair like that, jump up on the pulpit, and the papers said he was sensational. You know what happened? He preached and preached and preached and preached, and when he left town, the saloons closed and the theaters closed and the houses of prostitution closed, not because they passed laws against them, but nobody wanted to go to them. They had their hearts changed. Demons were cast out under the Word of God. Now the world says today, it's all right, we'll support you. You have a nice uh, little meeting and have a nice little neat church and don't get very excited and don't take any stand against sin and don't do anything a little bit abnormal. Just give us some pious platitudes and some moralisms and everything will be all right. Don't worry us. The world says that. But I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, when you get your heart right and your life changed and Jesus Christ comes into you and your behavior changes and your sin life changes, the world's going to look at you and they're going to say something's happened. I don't understand it. And some of them won't like it. And some of them will think that there's something wrong with you. Some will hate you. Some will despise your church. And they'll talk and say all manner of evil against you, just like they did Jesus. Just as true today as it was then. And we need to look for it to get more severe as we approach the end of the age. You know, the people that don't take any stand against sin, I don't know what they do with things like this. Do they say this is just something that happened back in those days? Something that's not repeated today? Well, I'll tell you this is repeated today. Mordecai Ham was a great man. They called him a fighting preacher. In the early years that I was here at this church, Mordecai Ham was still living. I had the funeral of his sister. One of the family said, uh, now, a preacher, uh, my brother's going to be here. Uh, don't let him say anything. Uh, he's controversial. If he says anything, he might take a stand against something, because he always did. You know how that would seem, that would seem sort of funny, wouldn't it? Don't let him say anything. <laughs> he came to the funeral. He didn't say anything. He didn't want to say anything. But that's the way with the unsaved world. You see the conflict. There's a conflict that is raging. Last of all, I want you to see the commission. And they saw it, verse 16, and told how it befell on him that was possessed with the demon was concerning the swine. They began to implore him to depart out of their borders. Jesus, get out of here. 
We don't want any more things like this to happen. Our hogs are pretty important to us. You know, they're our economy today. And when he was come to the boat, he that had been possessed with the demon implored him that he might go with him. Can't you just say it's one of the most pathetic verses in the Bible? That dear man that had gotten saved, freed from all the demon possession and obsession. He said, said Lord, Lord, I could never tell you how much you mean to me. I love you. Lord, let me go with you. Let me be one of your disciples and go with you on that boat. Oh, Jesus, let me just go with you. And out of a heart of love, Jesus said to that man, you go back home. Go back to your friends and tell them what great things Christ hath done for you. And he went back and began to publish in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done. Have we done that since we got saved? Have you done that? After Jesus saved you, did you come and make it public? Did you let everybody know it? You know, there's some folks that, you know, they get saved and, and they're scared. They say, I don't want anybody to know that. Uh, that's, that's just personal. I'm scared. Jesus said to that man possessed with demons after he got saved and changed, one of the evidences of his change, he got clothed and in his right mind. It's a far cry from that fellow I saw at a freedom rally in Louisville. Uh, they were having hippies and yippies up there, and this guy didn't have any feet shoes on, and, and he had toenails painted L-O-V-E. He had long hair, clear down his back, and hardly any clothes on. And he said, Jesus, save me. I'd like to have gotten up and read this thing to him and said, when that man got saved, he got clothed and in his right mind. When Jesus comes in, he changes you. He changes your heart and your mind and your destiny. He changes everything about you. And then he gives you that desire to let others know about it. And Jesus said, you go tell what great things Christ has done. Has that happened to you since you got saved? Has Jesus come in and changed you and saved you? And then have you said, well, I want to get down here and let everybody know it. Even if I fall down the steps, I'm going to get down here and let everybody know that Jesus is in my heart. Christ has forgiven me and cleansed me and saved me. And I'm not ashamed to walk down that aisle. I'm not ashamed to go up there and profess Christ in baptism. I'm not ashamed to go out and live for God and serve him and say no to the devil and yes to God and to the devil go back to where you belong in hell. I'm going to serve my Christ. Has that happened to you? Let's pray. Close your eyes. Bow your head, please. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, we thank Thee for the wonderful Word of God. We pray that the Holy Spirit would use it tonight to say to every heart here, those who are without Jesus, come with your sins and your heartaches and your sorrows and your broken spirit and your mixed-up convictions and your confusion. Come and I will in no wise cast you out. May the Holy Spirit deal with the hearts of individuals, some who have been saved but have been attacked by Satan since they've been saved and have allowed their lives to be all confused and messed up with sin again. Oh, Jesus, tonight, move across thy people's hearts and draw folks to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? Everyone standing, we're going to sing God's invitation. Now remember this is the invitation of the Lord. It's not mine, it's His. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved, I want to urge you to come to Christ.
Just come like you are with your sins and your sorrows and your heartaches and your hurts and your confusion and your mixed up standards and say, Lord, I give myself to thee. Will you do it? Out of my sickness, sorrow, and sin, Jesus, I come to thee. Will you do it? If you've never been saved, will you come to Christ? If you've been saved but you've never made it public, remember what the Lord said, go and tell what great things Christ has done for you. Will you do that? Let it be known. Come down here and say, I've trusted Jesus and I'm not ashamed of him. Some of you have been saved but you've never been baptized. Why don't you come tonight and say, I've trusted Jesus to save me. I'm going to trust him to get me through that baptismal pool without drowning, and I'm going to serve God, live for him. Why don't you do that? Some of you have been hiding behind some confusion that Satan has put in your life, and he's tried to obsess you and discourage you and defeat you. I plead with you in Jesus' name tonight to say to Satan, get thee behind me. I'm going to serve the Lord Jesus. While we begin to sing, who will step out first for the King? Come tonight for Jesus' sake.